For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope for which has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you very much, Mendez. Uh, please keep your Bibles open there. And as we turn to look at that together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we have just heard read. And we pray now that you would give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand your word and to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're thinking about this word, ambitious, ambitious. I wonder what you think of as you hear that word. We can sometimes, I think, have negative uh, associations with the idea of someone who is ambitious. Maybe you think of the hot-headed city worker who will walk over anyone in order to achieve their career ambitions, and that kind of ambitiousness. Well, that's not the only kind of ambition there is. I asked uh, some of my Facebook friends this week uh, what they were ambitious for, and I've got some of their responses here. Um, Someone, uh, a new mum, puts a guessing a full night's sleep. Um, That's something that my wife can associate with. Um, Someone else put the future of my son. That's an old school friend. I didn't know he was expecting a son, but there we go. He's now very mindful of that. Uh, Someone else has put 1,000 subscribers to his new YouTube channel. Uh, That's his ambition. Uh, Someone's put uh, my children coming to faith, a return to normality. Uh, Someone I haven't caught up in a few years said it used to be a career in film, uh, but now I'm just ambitious to have a family and the time to spend with them. Lots of family ambitions there. Uh, someone's put um, to, see, uh, to be seen as competent by my colleagues. Um, feeling a little insecure there, maybe. Um, someone put my new career mode on an F1 game on Xbox, which I didn't really even understand what that was, but something to do with Formula One, Xbox, anyway. Um, I'll ask that person later. They go to church here, but they're not here this morning. I won't embarrass him. Phil. Um, uh, And someone else uh, has put, um, to raise my children unharmed from my incompetence. (laughs) Again, they're feeling a little bit worried about what they're doing. But there we go. I wonder what you would say that you're ambitious for. Are you ambitious for uh, anything much? And particularly, are you ambitious when it comes to your faith? Or are you drifting in your faith? A guy called Oliver Holmes said this, a person without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. A person without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. Are you drifting in your spiritual life or is there a purpose, a direction, an ambition to which you are heading? Um, 
I often get these text messages uh, from people uh, in the morning um, to tell me that they have been praying for me. Um, I find it very encouraging. In fact, very conveniently, just before I headed down here this morning, I got a text message um, exactly like the one that I'm describing. Morning, Chris. Praying for you and the church family at APC this morning. Praying for today's service to be a great encouragement to all. Let's hope that prayer is answered. And there are a couple of people that regularly send me text messages to say, oh, I've just been praying for you. And they tell me what they've been praying for me. And I find that hugely encouraging. And I also find that it often redirects my ambitions for myself. You know, as I've started the role here, I've got text messages like praying that you'll be a a godly and wise pastor and that you will love the people under your care. And I think, yeah, yeah, I should be praying that more often for myself, really, shouldn't I? That's a great thing to be praying for me. Thank you. And those kind of comments, those uh, uh, reminders of what people are praying for me redirect my ambitions for myself spiritually. Well, in the verses that we're looking at in Ephesians 1 this morning, Paul tells the Ephesian church how he's praying for them. But these prayers aren't unique to the church in Ephesus. He could just as well have prayed them for Eastbridge Parish Church here in October 2020. And as we look at what he prays for the church, it should encourage us with the truths contained in it, but it should also have that effect of redirecting our ambitions for ourselves spiritually as we see what he prays for us. It should, to use that metaphor, fix the rudder and set its course for us, spiritually speaking. And so let's look together at what Paul is ambitious for us for, that we might not drift, but might have a direction and a purpose in our Christian lives. Look down with me at verse 15. He says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. He begins with those four words for this reason because he's looking back to all that he said in the first half of the chapter. He's saying in light of this astonishing, wonderful salvation that has been achieved for anyone in Christ, I'm delighted to see evidence that that includes you, the Ephesian church. He's looking at their faith and their love and those act as proofs, as evidences that they are those who are in Christ. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. You see, we all want good for those that we love, don't we? And what Paul has just described, he is clear enough that what he's just described is the best thing that anyone can have to be chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. And he loves the Ephesian church. And so his heart leaps with joy to see that they have been given this greatest of blessings. In fact, every spiritual blessing in Christ, verse 5. He's delighted. He's full of thanks and gratitude. But, verse 17, his spiritual ambitions haven't dried up there. How does verse 17 begin? I keep asking. And you might well think, well, what, what, what else could he ask for? They have every spiritual blessing in Christ. What else could there be? And the answer is that he doesn't pray now for more blessings, but for a deeper grasp and comprehension of and enjoyment of those blessings that they already have in Christ. He prays, verse 17, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know God better. Verse 17, 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I don't know whether uh, any of you have ever tried learning a catechism. You may not even know what a catechism is. We, um, uh, for a while, taught um, our eldest two boys a bit of a catechism over breakfast, and we, um, we thought we were doing quite well. We um, felt quite pleased with ourselves, perhaps a little bit smug, until we found out that one of them thought that catechisms were to do with cats, and we realized that we hadn't made quite as much progress spiritually as we perhaps had thought we had. But a catechism is essentially a set of questions and answers. And through the centuries, Christians have learnt off by heart these questions and these answers as a framework for them, particularly for new or young Christians to understand their faith. And one of the most famous catechisms is called the Westminster Catechism, which has 196 questions and answers. Um, You used to have to learn the whole catechism before you got baptized. We're let off lightly um, these days, or perhaps we're not, I don't know. But um, uh, the first question and answer in that catechism, I don't know, stick up your hand if you think you might know what the first question in the Westminster Catechism is. No one's, I've one wave at the back, but I won't pick on that person. I've been too impressed. The first question um, is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, a very similar idea to this knowing, enjoying God and all that we have in him. This is the chief end that we were all made for. It's our purpose, our end. You know, Paul doesn't write to the Ephesians and say, um, I've got a list of ambitions for different ones of you. Those over here who don't know your Bibles quite as well, maybe try and work on that. You over here, you're kind of sorted on your doctrine, but maybe you want to do a bit more on your church history. No, he doesn't do any of that. He has this one ambition for everyone, that you may know him better. You see, when we think of what our ambitions are in the spiritual life, it could be easy for us to think quite individualistically about that. In the last couple of years of school, I remember that we all had to go to the careers department and do one of these tests to see what career we should be doing. And I can't quite remember. I suspect that I didn't take the test terribly seriously because I do remember what the answer was. Um, I remember filling it in on the computer, clicking submit, and then it comes up with the report on the screen. And this is entirely true. Top of the list said I should be a fence erector, that I should put up fences. Um, maybe you think it was right, um, but that certainly isn't something that I pursued. The girl next to me, Hattie, genuinely, hand on heart, this is true, Buddhist monk, was at the top of the list. She's a girl. I d- someone got paid to produce that bit of software. Anyway, I didn't pay much attention to the careers advice um, on that program. I dare say neither did Hattie. Um, but the point is, we don't need to undertake some kind of personality test, some kind of a questionnaire to work out what it is that we need to be working on, such that we all have different ambitions in the Christian life. No, there is one for everyone who is in Christ, that we might know him better. Remarkably simple, isn't it? No test that we need to do to work that out. That is Paul's prayer for us. And be clear, it is not a prayer to know God better in a purely academic or intellectual way. The word here translated know, know him better, has that sense of recognizing. 
It's when you've experienced something personally so much yourself that you just recognize it now. You know, when you pick up the phone, you go, hello, and someone says, it's me. And they don't need to say any more. You just go, oh, hi, mum. Or maybe you get a letter through the post and you look at the writing on it and you go, oh, yeah, I know who that's from. Because you just know their handwriting. And that comes about just through time spent with that person, enough experience of relating to them that you just recognize them now. And that is the sort of knowledge that Paul prays here for us to have of God, a knowing, recognizing him personally. He's saying, now that you have been adopted to sonship, enjoy getting to know your father. Now that you have this spiritual blessing, make the most of it. Indulge. That's Paul's prayer. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Is that something that you are spiritually ambitious for? We'll each know the honest answer to that for ourselves. I guess it may be more helpful to ask, to what extent is that a spiritual ambition that you have for yourself? Allow Paul's prayer this morning to encourage you also to redirect your ambitions towards God. But Paul goes on in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, and I'm going to pause us there. He's about to list three things that he wants us to know. But first, let's think about that phrase at the beginning of verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, when the Bible uses the language of the heart, it's not talking merely about our emotions or our feelings, as we often think it does in our culture today. But rather, it's referring more to the sort of thing we mean when we talk about the heart of a city. Now, what would you say is at the heart of Sheffield City? There are all sorts of ways you could answer that, aren't there? You could answer it geographically. What's at the heart of the city? Uh, the city hall? Uh, John Lewis could put on their website, we're a business at the heart of the city. And geographically, they would be right, wouldn't they? Uh, how about culturally? What's culturally at the heart of Sheffield? The pubs? Lots of them. The Arctic monkeys? Henderson's relish, maybe. Whippets and flat caps. I think when I came um, for a, a university open day here, I'd never been to Sheffield before, I stepped off the train and I imagined everyone would kind of have flat caps and soot-covered faces, and, you know, and I was delightfully surprised, although I think I probably would have enjoyed it either way. But there we go. What's um, educationally at the heart of the city? The universities, maybe? Uh, professionally, the hospitals? Historically, the steelworks? Cutlery? You see, the point is there are all sorts of ways that you could answer that, all sorts of things that go together to form the heart of a city, and the same is true of a person in the way that the Bible uses that language of the heart. The heart is the most deep part of a human person. It is all that goes together to make that person who they really are. It's the real you. And when Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, it's a prayer that at the very deepest level of who we are, we might be flooded with light so that we might see and perceive and know these three things, that we are supremely blessed, supremely cherished, and supremely secure. 
Let's take a look at those in turn. First, supremely blessed, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, firstly, the hope to which he has called you. That hope isn't a reference to what we are hoping for, but what we are hoping in, namely the Lord Jesus and the salvation described earlier in the chapter. Paul's praying that at the very deepest level of our being, we would be shaped by a knowledge of this gospel hope to which he has called us and the supreme blessings that flow to us through Jesus. Supremely blessed. Secondly, supremely cherished. Paul is praying that we would know that we are supremely cherished. Uh, Look down at the end of verse 18. He prays that we would know the riches of his, that is God's, glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now you have to concentrate on that phrasing a little to understand quite what it is that Paul is saying there. He's praying for us to see and know that we, God's people, the church, are to him a rich and glorious inheritance. It is a wonderful thing to know that you are cherished and loved like that. My grandmother is now with the Lord, uh, but one of my strongest memories of her isn't of one occasion, but is of a repeated thing. Whenever we used to go and visit her when we were children, um, I remember one of us would ring on the doorbell and she would open the door and her face would just light up with delight. She she always looked surprised. It's like, well, you knew we were coming, Gran, but she was there going, oh, so happy to see you. And we knew as young children that we were cherished by her. It's a lovely thing. And when God sees us, the church, he delights in us. We are a rich and glorious inheritance to him. We are supremely cherished. And thirdly, and here Paul spends a little bit more time, Paul prays that we would see and know that we are supremely secure. Verse 19, he wants us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. This power is for us in the sense that it is for our benefit, to our advantage. And in order to show us the incomparable greatness of this power for us, he shows us what this power has done in the past. Look from halfway through verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul is saying, this power that is for you, look at what it's done before. It has lifted Christ up from the dead. And it's as though kind of on the way from death up to glory, he says, look at all the things that he went past and above on the way. Every prime minister and president, every power and authority, every philosophy, every threat that we might fear, and he has been set way above it all. That is where Jesus is. That is what the power of God for him has achieved. And look who's under his feet, verse 22. All things. And look what he's the head over. Everything. 
And look who it's for, the church. And we're described in verse 23 as his body. That is that we are intrinsically connected by faith to him, our head. And we're described as the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are his fullness because in a, in a unique and special way, the church is filled with his presence, with his spirit, with his power. And yet he is the one who fills everything in every way in that his power and dominion has no limits to it. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This power, says Paul, is verse 19 for us. Verse 22, for the church. And if this power is for us, then we are supremely secure. Nothing can touch us. Uh, The coronation in this country uh, was now 67 years ago uh, when Queen Elizabeth II came to the throne. And at the heart of the coronation is the crown jewels. And let me tell you a few things that I've learned this week about the crown jewels. Okay, Firstly, there's the crown. Uh, St. Edward's crown, completed in 1661. It is uh, covered in 444 precious stones weighing in at well over two kilograms. Must need a strong neck to wear that. And then there's the scepter, a symbol of the monarch's power, decorated with 333 diamonds, along with 31 rubies, 15 emeralds, seven sapphires, six pinels, and one amethyst, if you wanted to know. And among those 333 diamonds is one called the Great Star of Africa, which at over 530 carats is still the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. And then there's the orb, a sphere of gold wrapped in 777 precious jewels. Now, to the observant eye, you may notice that there is something common between all of those items in the crown jewels. And that is that the shape of the orb with a cross on top of it appears on top of the crown, and also on top of the scepter. And that orb is a symbol that all the world sits under the power and authority of the one who died on the cross. Isn't that brilliant? That even at the top of the most iconic symbols of power, of this nation's kings and queens who have ruled for over a thousand years and for a time over the largest empire in human history. Atop those symbols emblazoned with the richest jewels that the world can afford, there at their summit is a reminder that all this glory and power sits firmly beneath the majesty of heaven's king. I love that reminder. Just in case any of them were to think too much of themselves. Remember who's really king. And this King Jesus and all his incomparably great power is for us who believe the church. What need we fear? Who can touch us? Who can pluck us from his hand? No one. 
nothing. Never. We are in him supremely secure. Supremely blessed, supremely cherished, supremely secure. Paul prays that these things would, at the very deepest level of our being, shape us and form us as people. So Paul's prayer should encourage us and redirect our ambitions such that we too pray for and pursue a deeper delight in God and all he has done for us. And this, I do believe, is what we all really want, actually. Whether or not we would identify the source of our, the object, sorry, of our ambitions. To know God more deeply and to rejoice more in all that he has done for us. I think we're disappointed when we lack that. So I was speaking to someone here on the phone during lockdown, asking them how they were getting on. And they said very honestly that they thought their spiritual life had just really gone on the back burner. It was hardly really there anymore. And there was a disappointment in that comment and a desire for that to change. So I think we, we're disappointed when we lack it. And I think that we are rightly a little envious when we see it in other Christians. I used to, uh, for a long time, I used to um, read prayers in this book called The Valley of Vision, written by Puritans several hundred years ago. Puritans were basically a bunch of guys who were spiritually dynamite. They really knew God and loved him and meditated very deeply on the truths of the gospel. And often as I read and still when I occasionally do read these prayers, I feel a a kind of appropriate envy and jealousy of the sort of closeness that these men had with God. So I think we're disappointed when we lack it. We're jealous when we do see it. And it is right that our spiritual ambitions should be directed towards knowing God better and enjoying more all he has done for us. A person without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. Don't drift in, the spirit, in your spiritual life. Don't be content with that. Allow this prayer in Ephesians 1 to redirect your ambitions and redirect your heart towards him. I want to make one very simple application this morning in order to be completely uh, clear about how we might each respond uh, to this. And it's, uh, it's, it's this. If we are ever to know someone in the sense of recognizing them, that only comes about when we spend time with them. And so I want to ask each of us about time that we spend with God. I uh, had a little um, bit of, did a bit of research. I found out that the typical British adult spends on average three and a quarter hours per day on their smartphone, more than four hours watching TV. I guess those must overlap a bit. Otherwise, I don't know how people would do anything else in life. But that's a lot of time, isn't it? Now, you and I may be below those averages. But how much time do you spend with God day to day? Um, it may be that um, you've never really got into a pattern of reading the Bible daily and praying. That old chestnut, the vicar's on about reading your Bible again. Yeah. Spending time with God is the only way to grow in our knowledge of him and all that he has done for us. 
Well, if you haven't got into that habit before, or perhaps you have, but you've, you know, it's just got stale or you've got out of that habit, it needs a restart. And I regularly need to hit restarts on that area of my life. Uh, I've got 20 copies of this booklet at the back, which is conveniently called Time with God. And uh, it gives a page a day. Um, it's not hard. It's not ti- terribly time-consuming. 15 minutes gives you a few verses from the Bible to read, some comments to think about, a suggestion of how you might pray in light of it. Really, all you need is a Bible, but being told just to go and read your Bible is a bit like being given a fork and being told to eat an elephant. You think, how? Where do I start? Uh, This helps you to know how and where to start uh, with the Bible. So why not pick one of those up? They're for free. And when you finish those uh, 28 days, it's it's what it provides uh, support for, 28 days, you can subscribe. It gives you details of how to subscribe to receive more of them. It's as cheap as chips, a few quid. You get uh, one booklet that covers a few months. And uh, even if it weren't that cheap, it would still be very, very much worth it. Why don't you use a resource like that to kickstart your spending more time with God? Now, I know that many here do read their Bibles and pray uh, daily or at least regularly. And if that's you, uh, then let me encourage you to be re-inspired in doing that, to ensure that your ambition as you do that is not simply a head knowledge, but a heart recognition of God, that you would meet personally with him and delight more in all that he has done for you. And so in one way or another, may we as a church be as ambitious as Paul is in this prayer to know and delight in God and the knowledge of the gospel that we are supremely blessed, supremely cherished, and supremely secure. Amen.